Hi, it's Jesse, the founder of MaxFun, coming to you from the microphone at my home office where I am socially segregating. So we promised you a MaxFun drive this week, but things haven't exactly gone how we expected. So given the pandemic, we're going to postpone this year's drive. Uh, events are still fluid, so we're hesitant to give you specifics about new dates. Right now, we have late April penciled into our calendars. We'll keep you posted about that. As it stands, a lot of our drive machinery was already cranked up. So for one thing, you might hear a reference or two to the drive in our shows, which might have been recorded before we made this decision. And uh, here is some good news. There's a bunch of great bonus content available for all of our MaxFund members. If you're a member and you missed the email with instructions on how to listen, check your spam folder or log in at MaximumFun.org manage. Uh, also at MaximumFun.org manage, you can change your membership if your circumstances have changed. We know this is a tough time for a lot of people and we understand. You can also go to MaximumFun.org join at any time if you'd like to become a member. During the next couple of weeks, what would have been the drive, we're going to do our best to be extra available to you. Uh, we've got some streaming events planned, some social media stuff. We know a lot of folks are isolated right now, and we want to help provide comfort in the best ways that we know how. You can follow us on social media, and we'll let you know what's up. During this tough time, I have been feeling really grateful for my community of colleagues here at MaxFun and for you, the folks who make our work possible, goofy as that work may sometimes be. Stay safe out there. We're thinking of you. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Jason Siegel has had a lot of interesting roles over the years. He's usually the best friend type. Maybe a little corny, always very endearing. He got his start on screen in his late teens. He starred alongside James Franco and Seth Rogen on the short-lived cult show Freaks and Geeks. And from there, a bunch of other roles. How I Met Your Mother, I Love You Man, Knocked Up, just to name a handful. But he's also a very talented writer. He wrote and revived The Muppets for a new generation, and his first writing gig was the feature film Forgetting Sarah Marshall. He also starred in the film. It's sort of a romantic comedy. In it, he portrayed struggling musician Peter Bretter. The film starts with a breakup, and it ends with a musical about Dracula. And if I see Van Helsing, I swear to the Lord I will slay him. Ha 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 ha! He'd take you from me, but I swear I won't let it be so. Ha ha ha! Jason Siegel's latest show is kind of a departure from all that. He's very proud of it. It's called Dispatches from Elsewhere. It's airing right now on AMC. It follows the lives of a group of regular people who discover a hidden world. It's mysterious and earnest and sometimes a little silly. Jason is the show's creator and the star of the series. He plays Peter, a lonely, complacent man who's been slowly suffocating in the mundanity of his life. This all changes when he stumbles onto a life-changing opportunity offered 
by the enigmatic Jejun Institute. But before all that, he's just Peter. In this clip, his therapist confronts him on what he really hopes to get out of their sessions. I guess I'm just settling into the idea that this is it, that this is what life is. I don't really have anything to say about that yet. You feel stuck. I feel nothing, mostly. Maybe like a sense of loss, but I don't know for what. Don't you think it's time you found out? Jason Siegel, welcome to Bullseye. It's so nice to have you on the show. Hey, thanks. I'm really excited to be here. I was thinking about the show as I was watching it last night and thinking, you know, you got your break in show business with adolescent emotional crises, (laughs) kind of rose to stardom on quarter life emotional crises, and you're finally engaging with uh, midlife emotional crises. Yeah, that sounds right. And I think that in a lot of ways... All that's happened is like the same devices that I use to express those things have become <laughs> slightly more sophisticated. You know, when I was <laughs> when I was 25, uh, all I could manage was like the literal version of exposing yourself. <laughs> and, and now, as I've gotten older, I've sort of delved into metaphor. <laughs> Does that make sense? It does make sense. I mean, you did very literally. I was I was taking a walk yesterday with my dog and listening to a conversation you had with Terry Gross on Fresh Air oh, yeah. uh, 10 or 12 years ago when the big Jason Siegel news in the world was your private parts on movie screens. <laughs> yeah. Well, to me, it was like, well, you know, it's actually interesting. I was sort of making a joke, but so one, that was me trying to lay myself bare, like how honest am I willing to be on screen? For a 24, 25 year old, that felt like full frontal nudity was the answer to that question. Like, look, I'll I'll be totally, I'll lay myself bare on screen. But the other thing that I wanted to do with that moment, there was some artistic merit to it in that um, one of the things I I never liked about romantic comedies is that you, you know the inevitability of like the guy is going to end up with the girl on the poster. That's what's going to happen. And you know it going in. But I thought when I was writing it, if I open this movie with full frontal male nudity from the lead, you're sort of forced to sit back and say, I I don't know what's going to happen in this movie. Like anything could happen. And it sort of does, you know, it ends, we meet like the inevitability, but also it ends with a lavish Dracula puppet musical. And another dose of full frontal nudity. Those same sort of throw you off guard techniques I try to use in dispatches where we open with a really, really uncomfortable moment. Um, It's just the 40-year-old version of that. And (laughs) also the whole show is an exercise of me trying to lay myself bare on screen. I try to do it for all the characters in a much more, you know, there are scarier things than being naked. It's like... I th- I think at my age it's a little scarier to feel like oh I'm 40 and I have no idea what I'm doing. Part of what I wondered about this show is that you had had a period of you know for an actor or a show business person generally you know relative stability 
and security. I mean, you had had some successes in films, but more than that, you were the star of a long-running successful sitcom, which is pretty much the best job in show business as far as jobs go. You know what I mean? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. No, it's it's hitting the lottery for sure. Yeah, like it, it pays good and it's regular. And if it's the kind of show like How I Met Your Mother, the show that you were on, that is successful enough that it feels like a success most of the time. You know, it's stable in a way that almost no other show business work is. But, you know, that ended eventually. And I wondered if you having had this job that everyone would reasonably tell you is the best job in show business and having had you know, artistic successes that were, you know, dream jobs, making a Muppet movie and stuff like that as well yeah. uh, during that time. Whether when that ended, it led you to evaluate, uh-oh, what do I do with my with my calendar <laughs> when I don't have a read-through every Tuesday or whatever? <laughs> the crisis was bigger than what I do with my calendar. If you know, like, uh, I mean, truly, it was a it was a really interesting moment because I think one of the things that you're forced to evaluate after all of the things that you described are true about doing a job like that. So then, then you're left with like a question: the stability continues. Like you've made a bunch of money, you know, so you don't now have to you're not scared about paying your bills and you get to choose what you want to do next and you're sort of faced with the question of am i going to make choices about trying to stay famous or popular or any of those things or am i going to now use this amazing gift i've been given of stability to um be brave and try stuff I've never tried. Try to be um, try to be the same guy who ended forgetting Sarah Marshall with a lavish Dracula puppet musical, where I was like, I don't know if this is gonna work, but I sure think it's cool, and I think other people might think it's cool, and let's try it and see what happens. I guess I don't know that artistic bravery is built on stability. You know what I mean? I think it's there's a, there's a really great clip called David Bowie Advice to Artists. It's like two and a half minutes long. You just Google it, and and he says that when you're when you're operating out of your comfort zone, you're probably not making anything interesting. But if you walk a little bit further into the water, so your feet aren't touching the ground anymore, that's maybe when you're gonna be in some territory that might I don't know that might be art. And for me. I was um, like the whole time I was making dispatches from elsewhere, there was a little part of me that thought, oh, I mean, this might not work. And that was really exciting. It was, it made me hungry to make sure I was really thinking about what I was trying to accomplish and how to execute it best. Were you afraid that it wouldn't work? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. The thing is that when you, I created it. And so you have to believe more than anyone. Because, I mean, there's just a million no's along the way. Anytime you're trying to make something, it's it's hard and it's expensive and all of these things. Um, so publicly, 
I'm just like, yes, I know, trust me, believe me. But yeah, in my in my guts, I was I was definitely scared that it might not work. And I watched the ten episodes. It's the thing that I'm most proud of that I've done in a decade. Um, and there are some people for whom it won't work. Some people are going to, I think, die hard, love this show, and think like, oh, this is what I've been looking for. And then other people will think, oh, this is silly. And I don't know. I'm like, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm pretty excited about that, actually. What was the consequence that you were afraid of if it didn't work? The same thing everyone's afraid of, of that people are going to make fun of you. That's the culture that we live in is that if you try something earnestly and boldly that you might be embarrassed. Somebody might embarrass you. Um, luckily, I, I I don't seem to have a very highly developed sense of pride or shame around <laughs> things like that. And I'm like – I'm happy to act as a surrogate <laughs> into those territories, you know? <laughs> I, I want to play, so the first thing that you did on television and the thing that established your career, you'd acted in a few films already yeah. uh, when you were in high school, but but the thing that really made your name and career was the television show Freaks and Geeks. Yeah. And on one of the DVDs, there there was the, you know, camcorder footage of your audition for the part of Nick Andopoulos, which you ended up playing. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is a scene uh, that is him explaining to a girl he likes Oh no! about the drum set that he has in his basement. And again, oh, okay. this is like, this is audio just from a prosumer video camera in the audition room. Got it. Uh, Am I improving this? Does it sound like or is it scripted? I guess we'll find out. It sounds like you might be adding a little flair, but it sounds like it's scripted. Okay. Okay. Lindsay, I, I brought you here because I, I want uh, I want to show you something. What is it? All right. Check it out. Uh, this is it. 14 mounted toms, 6 floor toms, 10 cowbells, Four rides, five snares, <laughs> roto-tong system. It's all mounted on the uh, patented Ken Miller quadruple kick drum system, man. Wow, Nick, that is amazing. Thanks. Uh, six more pieces, and I'll, I'll have a better, uh, I'll have a better kit than you, apart from Rush. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> It's really sweet. You do a great job. You can see why you got the part. Uh, yeah, I also hear I hear Paul Feig. That's Paul Feig laughing, and he's being, that's being so generous. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I'm okay. It's it's not that funny, but he's really he's really making me feel comfortable. He's such a sweet man. <laughs> yes, he's such a sweet man. What what I like about watching that audition clip is. You know, there are a few moments, and it's hard to hear in the audio of it, but you can see it very vividly in the video. You're playing to the house a little bit. There's a few moments where you kind of milk laughs. Yeah. But the overall vibe is that sort of deeply, almost painfully 
earnest. earnest and sincere. And it's like watching it's like watching the show, the the version of that character that ended up on the show, but like before somebody said to you, like, don't do any jokes at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know that's I mean? yeah, that's the thing about auditioning, which is what, what I never loved about it, is that you're like, um, you're specifically trying to impress people. And to me, to me, the real challenge of acting I've learned as I've gotten older, and this is just from being around people who I think are really good at it and watching people who I really admire. The big challenge is when the camera is looking at you, not not to give in to trying to impress it. That's that to me is everything. It's like, are you willing to just be honest when the camera is asking you to do something? Don't do it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it's a terrifying prospect. Yeah, because think about like all of a sudden when someone even is just taking a picture with their camera phone, you do like this weird face, like this smile that you don't do in life or you do a weird pose. Like, you know, all of that instinct is going through you when the camera's on you. Like uh, I should I should be this is forever. You know, I should be trying to impress whoever's watching this. And um, the people who I really, really admire, who I watch, are able to resist that impulse to show off. Was that a lesson that you had to learn as an 18-year-old or, or however old you were when you started making Freaks and Geeks? Yeah, I think that the big challenge that Judd presents you with is how honest are you willing to be on screen? And I've like, what is the most honest version of a, a teenage guy singing to his girl in the basement? Don't give me the sketch comedy version. Give me the painful one. You know, the one that makes you so uncomfortable because you're like, that's me. I've sort of taken that lesson throughout my career. I'm just trying, trying to do the most st stripped down version, maybe. More with Jason Siegel still to come. When we come back from a quick break, we'll talk with Jason about how he works humor into the tone of a show like Dispatches from Elsewhere. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This week on NPR's Invisibilia, we take you to a summer program for teenagers with sleepovers, marshmallows, and racial confrontation. I want you to all line up by skin tone, lightest to darkest. That's up next on NPR's Invisibilia. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Jason Siegel, starred for years on the TV shows Freaks and Geeks, How I Met Your Mother, and more. He created and stars in a brand new series. It's called Dispatches from Elsewhere. It's airing now on AMC. You know, when I was listening to that interview from a, a decade or so ago that you did with Terry Gross, one of the things you talked about was that at some point, I think on Freaks and Geeks, Judd Apatow told you that what was special about you as a performer was that you read as, I'm paraphrasing, but that you read as sweet enough that you could really go really far toward yeah. the line of being creepy. Yeah. Uh, and people would still accept it and be on your side. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it, it has been my sweet spot unfortunately or fortunately for better or for worse is this this fine line between charming and creepy where like i mean there are parts in for this is just be, being self-aware but like there are parts in forgetting sarah marshall that could veer into 
oh, get away from this guy. <laughs> right. You know, like Mila Kunis should run. And in some ways that is like in dialogue with romantic comedy, which is a genre that is about, that is substantially about guys that women should get away from. Yeah. I think somehow I managed to project some <laughs> version of like, oh, it'll be fine. <laughs> like, No, give him a shot. You know, meanwhile, I'm like doing this lavish Dracula puppet musical in a weird voice and crying hysterically. But I guess, you know, for some reason, uh, it seems like, oh, take care of that guy. <laughs> that lavish uh, Dracula musical is maybe the signature moment of Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which is a great movie. Thanks. And, uh, and I say that as somebody who hates Draculas. You hate, um, wait, Draculas, pur- plural? Yeah. You hate vampires. Dangerous. You hate vampires. I hate Draculas, yeah. No, Dr- Dracula's a, a, an individual. Vampires, vampires are a type the... of guy. No, it's a type of guy and they have fangs. <laughs> Those are vampires. Dracula's yeah. just one guy, Count Dracul. Yeah, he's a Dracula. <laughs> oh, man, we're going to have to agree to disagree. So... It's a it's a beautiful movie. It's it's one of my faves. And um, and this this song at the end of it is grew out of in the in the film. It is is this quixotic project that this guy is has been working on to write this very sincere and intense musical about Dracula's. Um, (laughs) It is at the end. Sorry. No, it's Don't Dracula. It's just one Dracula. No, th- you're right. The musical is just about the one. <laughs> um, and so, like, it occupies this this strange space at the, in the conclusion of the movie, which is, like, if it's, not, if it's not good enough or earnest enough, it can't feel like a triumph for him to do it. Yeah. Uh, but if it's too good and too earnest, it's not a triumph for him to do it unless it's so good that it's extraordinarily good. You know what I mean? Like the triumph here is that he's doing it even though maybe it's not that good. Yeah. See, I think, so here's what I think the recipe is. And I, and I think that this really plays into dispatches as well. And I'm not trying to segue. I just think there's a parallel. Yeah. That I, I actually think that you can and must go full earnest. Like that is the real challenge because that is where real discomfort lies. And then where I agree with you is modulating how good something is, right? Because that's that's what makes it funny. But the discomfort, I think, comes from what if I present this to you, discomfort slash magic, with, with no sense of irony? And so – that that area is really really interesting to me. Muppets I did with no sense of irony. Like I am not commenting on the Muppets. I I love the Muppets. That's why I devoted 2 years as a grown man right after forgetting Sarah Marshall to the Muppets. And there's something about that that is like oh, whoa, that's like kind of why, you know? Well, I mean, that is also like that is also the nature of the Muppets is that the Muppets 
the Muppets, in a way, like ironize this classic, these classic Hollywood tropes by approaching them sincerely, but also being puppets. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dracula's, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that um, there's something about hmm, we're really uncomfortable when uh, the other shoe's not going to drop. Like we're waiting mm-hmm. for it as an audience, culturally. Maybe it goes back to that thing we were talking about, about uh, that you're afraid of being made fun of, right? You're just, what if it's just nice? Or what if something is just beautiful. It's uh, it's a very uncomfortable territory. And so in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, to watch this guy up there who really believes in this thing is uncomfortable. And I think, I think that's really interesting. I think there's something about dispatches that is very challenging because I just mean it. Like I, I think what if there – was magic and what if it required us to make it and what if we started just making this world better by taking it into our own hands and using art and community and magic as an act of defiance and I mean it and I'm not making fun of it come join me it's challenging I found I found the real experiment that I'm you know it was this thing actually happened that I'm profiling in dispatches from elsewhere in San Francisco in like 2012 this guy, this group, was the exact opposite of Fight Club, as opposed to handling this feeling of dissatisfaction with society by beating each other up. They chose to make magic in the secret of night, like this clandestine organization committed to beautification. And I found the whole thing like really challenging and uncomfortable. What? When is someone going to make fun of you? Or when is someone going to try to sell you something? Oh, they're not? I don't know. It's. I think there's something really interesting there. When you do your Dracula song in public, which you do on occasion, <laughs> yeah, you know the audience finds it hilarious because it's from a movie that was very funny. Yeah. It requires you to commit pretty fully emotionally yes to the song and it's a song you wrote is it do you ever want to just be like hey can we just do this one straight guys <laughs> like well, to the crowd <laughs> yeah do you know why you know why that that all works ultimately in, in forgetting sarah marshall or or why it's interesting for me to sing because i didn't write it for forgetting sarah marshall i wrote it when i was out of work from 22 to 25 trying to figure out what to do with my career. And I believed that I had cracked it, that what I was going to do was write a lavish Dracula puppet musical. And it was going to be like really, really successful. (laughs) And I believed it to my core. And I, I wrote it. I wrote the thing. And I went and I played it for Judd. And he listened respectfully and then said, you can't ever show this to anybody ever. (laughs) He was very protective of me. And then it was later when I got to put it into a comedy that it made sense. But what the reason it works is because when I sing it, it's true that I believed that that thing was really great. Like I still do. I think it's great. That's the part that I'm getting at here 
is I know that if you work that hard on something that means as much to you as those Dracula songs meant, yeah, that even with the benefit of the 15 or 20 years that have passed since and the knowledge that it was a great, you know, capper on a movie you made that was a comedy. Yeah. And it was a comic capper. You still have to be up there with a part of you being like, but guys, it is a pretty good song. I wrote it. Yes. Yeah. It's a, it's a good song. It's really about how hard it is to yeah. be. Yes. Uh, I mean, a hundred percent. Yeah. I, I have some level of self-awareness that what feels vital to me feels funny to others. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when you're making dispatches from elsewhere, yeah. how do you manage the funniness? There is some funniness in the show. Yes. Um, but how do you manage the funniness so that you because because it, it the earnestness of dispatches from elsewhere is real yeah and it's yours like personally as a human being an artist you're not presenting it as isn't it funny that i that i really believe this much less isn't it funny that this is dumb yeah so how do you how do you manage the tone like was that something you had to figure out in in writing and making it um I think that the approach that I take in general for comedy is I am you. So what would it be like for any average Joe to be thrust into this crazy circumstance? Um, I hold a fundamental belief that we are generally hopeful even if we're embarrassed to say it, and that we want the best for each other. And so I have to like have an act of faith that that's true. And for people who it's not true, they probably won't like the show. But I think a lot of people feel like they would like to feel hopeful. You have such a special cast in the show. And I'm often hesitant to ask, like, where did you get these people from and how did you get them to be on your show? But yes. I am going to do that because of how special the cast is. Oh, cool. Um, I did not discover show... Sally Field. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yes. Um, she, she was discovered by, uh, by a community of nuns who could fly, I believe. Yeah. She was well-established. Uh, Sally Field, I've just begged. I mean, I told uh -huh. her, I mean, I, I'm not even joking. Like I, I got her, got her to take a meeting with me. I had written that part for, uh, as a love letter to my mom. You know, I wanted to draw four different main characters who were in moments of existential crisis, um, life transitions, a sense of something being missing. And I wanted to draw four really distinct characters from each other so that in each episode I challenge you. I say, think of this character as you. I think at the beginning, we'll all pick the character that we most see ourselves in. And I'm hoping that by the end of the series, my goal is that you see yourself in all of them. When you say see yourself, I mean, you mean at the beginning, maybe literally like 
I'm a I'm a straight white dude. I'm gonna identify with the Siegel character. Yeah. And you know, you have people at different points in their lives and from different cultural contexts. Yes. In the story, and like in the first episode, being about your character, you think, well, your congratulations on presenting a forty-year-old <laughs> uh, directionless straight white man as a. As an everyman, yeah, we start <laughs> like, easy. Yeah. The, the the innovations of uh, the innovations of eighteen twenty four media are, have uh, have been <laughs> absorbed. Yes. Um, but then you immediately jump into asking the same thing of of the audience with the other characters. Yes. So Sally Field. What did you had you just like watch Smokey and the Bandit or something? I watched Smokey and the Bandit recently, and she's so good in it. Oh yeah. my god! You no, know, she's she's <laughs> she's un- so funny and great. Yeah, yeah it, it's unbelievable. And I felt like the story I wanted to tell for that character was of someone who had dedicated their life, committed their identity to one thing, two things: being a wife and mother. And now with 20 years left of their life, realizing those two kind of fundamental things they associated themselves with were no longer relevant to what was happening in their lives. Who am I now? What am I if I'm not an active mother, active wife, and I have 20 years left? What do I do? Um, And... I just knew she would be perfect for it, and she is, and I got really lucky. I'll be thankful to Sally forever for doing this show. What about Andre Benjamin, uh, who is in the show? And, you know, he's he's worked as an actor in the past broadly, but relatively less in the last decade or so. Um, yeah. So, like, did you, did you have to fly down to Atlanta and beg him? You know what? All I was told was that there was no way I was going to get Andre. And I really wanted Andre bad. I felt like even when you just listen to Outcast, uh, I know it's a, an entirely different medium and genre, but this guy was bringing themes back from the realm of metaphor into our reality. You know, and that's very much what's mm-hmm. happening in Dispatches. I just felt like. I had a hunch that this would align with his taste, but I just kept being told that it would be impossible. But we got the script to him and really quickly, he and I got on the phone and he said, I'm all in. And I tried to pitch him more and he said, I don't think you heard me. I'm all in. (laughs) And it was, I think that Andre and I ended up being, I mean, this is the premise of the show, but I think Andre and I ended up being way, way, way more similar than we could have ever anticipated in terms of some of the questions that we were asking ourselves. We're of similar ages. Um, we both had success and then kind of got older and were posed with the question of like, how do I, how, how, how do these creative impulses age up? You know, as I, as I'm getting older, what do they become? Um, so that's how Andre happened. Uh, Eve, I had a casting call. Eve came in and auditioned. And from the moment she read, it was very much like when Russell Brand auditioned for Forgetting Sarah Marshall. I was just like, oh, this is it. 
and I I rewrite everything for this amazing actress and. She really uh, is. Her, her name's Eve Lindley. I think she, she it might be in the episodes that I saw the strongest performance on the show in a, in an incredibly strong cast. You know, I I asked of my actors to really use the opportunity to express things they wanted to express about where they are in their lives, and Eve took that to heart and just uh, her her performance is fearless. I was wondering as I was watching it, she's a trans woman, and I wondered if you were uh, casting for someone trans or whether, and the the fact that she's trans plays into the episodes I saw somewhat, but isn't the central question of them. Um, And I wondered whether you were casting for someone trans or whether when you saw her audition, you, you know, worked that part of her life uh, around into to to make sense in the context of the show. Um, yeah, the the part was written for a trans woman. I was really interested in telling a a, a really beautiful love story between Peter and Simone, and not making uh, Simone's gen- gender identity her defining characteristic. Um, because I don't make Peter's gender identity his defining characteristic or Andre or Sally. And I tried to do that same idea with each character. What we are, you know, we're in this moment where we're told to like uh, categorize and label. And it's no wonder we all feel such separation from each other. And so one of the things that was interesting to me in terms of the visual diversity of the cast is then to not make what your instinctive primary observation about them uh, be be what their storyline is about. I, I wanted to treat all of the characters as fully rounded human beings. You also have Richard E. Grant in the show. Yeah. And he plays the shadowy uh, figure who both narrates the show and is leading whatever the game, mystery, uh, drama, magical experience that the characters are going through are going through. And he is maybe best known for his work in a very deeply beloved uh, cult comedy called With Nail and I. Yeah. Um, though he was also... Uh, pretty spectacular he's been spectacular in many things but he was very spectacular in um oh good gosh what was the movie in which he was uh, with uh with melissa mccarthy that came out two years ago yeah it has sorry in the title i'm, I'm yeah losing it now too. <laughs> is a very good movie and he is spectacularly yeah. good in it and like how do you cast for enigmatic figure <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i had the benefit of the real originator of that role, quote unquote, the Octavio Coleman Esquire from the real experiment. So I I did have some image in my mind of what I was looking for. With Nail and I is one of my big influences as an actor. I think his performance and that is as good as a performance can be. And so uh, he was the first person I met with for it. He's the first person cast in the show, I believe. Um, I sat down with him and he 
asked me a lot of personal questions about what the show was about, why I wanted to do it, and he signed on pretty quickly too. Uh, I, I, I got I got really really lucky. You know, when I talk about the show, even when it, when it didn't exist yet, it was just an idea. It's something that I really, really believe in, and I think that that probably comes across when you're when you're describing to an actor what you hope to accomplish. I think you might have missed your calling. You should be selling encyclopedias or something. You're a closer. I don't believe in them. I don't believe in encyclopedias. <laughs> <laughs> encyclopedias are for Draculas, bro. <laughs> oh, wow. This is big news. <laughs> you know how to close an interview on a bang. <laughs> Holy cow. Jason Siegel, I'm so grateful to you for uh, taking the time to be on Bullseye. I'm glad to get to talk to you, and I'm so glad for all your wonderful work. Oh, thanks, man. I had a real blast. This was a great conversation. Jason Siegel, folks. Dispatches from Elsewhere is airing right now on AMC. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where MacArthur Park Lake is overflowing from the recent rains and overflowing with fish. We saw somebody out the window catch a very big carp. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We have help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowley. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can keep up with the show there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 